See the Bell V-247 Vigilant in action this week at the Marine Corps Aviation Association Symposium, booth number 24, and the Bell 407 GXI at the Naval Helicopter Association Annual Meeting, booth number 68. Learn more at bellflight.com. Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my normal co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. I was actually ran up here uh, from the back parking lot of Beach Hall where I just handed over a thousand copies of the profession to our mids who are running the profession. It's the second year that we've uh, done this where we, the Naval Institute periodical staff has produced the profession for a group of midshipmen. It's sort of a, a loose analogy would be it's a JV proceedings magazine, more or less, and uh, this issue is uh, very cool. So just made that transfer just now. Busy times around here. It's pretty crazy. Lots going on. But that's actually going to be an official uh, extracurricular activity next year that the Naval Institute is uh, is is helping with. Um, and so that's very exciting for us. In addition to our internship and the other support we did for the Naval Academy Foreign Affairs Conference, just getting involved in uh, the lives of future naval officers in meaningful ways. That's that's part of our mission. Amen. Keying on that, we just wrapped up today the uh, the June issue of Proceedings, and um, you know, we have about eight themed issues every year. So September is always Naval Aviation. October is always a submarine theme. November is always a Marine Corps theme, etc. Uh, and then we've got usually four or five uh, that we that don't have a particular theme. Uh, and as we were reading through and thinking about what we would say on the cover of the June issue, uh, mm-hmm. what, what jumped out to me was how many junior authors we have in the coming in the June issue. And that's not an anomaly. We've got a lot of, you know, JOs and, and occasional midshipmen and, and enlisted writers uh, writing for us. But in the June issue, you're going to see a lot of of junior voices. In fact, that's what we put on the cover. Junior voices, uh, young sea service professionals writing about Navy Marine Corps Coast Guard issues. So we've got, uh, um, you know, we have Marine Captain Magyar. You were down at uh, Expeditionary Warfare School last week presenting the Lejeune Writing Award uh, to the best paper, the, be- the author of the best paper uh, in that uh, year-long class of professional military education. Uh, so we've got Magyar's piece in there, a great uh, Marine piece about expeditionary advanced-based operations and Corvette carriers. And uh, we've got uh, the five midshipmen here from the Naval Academy, the winners of the Capstone Essay Contest. We've got a couple enlisted authors this uh, coming this month. Uh, we have a husband and wife uh, Coast Guard Lieutenant Commanders, Pecora and Pecora, writing about Southcom and how it's time for a Coast Guard four-star officer to to be the helm, take the helm of uh, of U.S. Southern Command because there's so much going on that is um, uh, the types of missions that the Coast Guard is is ideally suited to do right, and, and they've got the Coast Guard's all over Southcom. They've been the J3 at Southcom for about ten years now, uh, and uh, they have you know very um, specific types of authorities, both military and law enforcement authorities uh, that need to be used in Southcom to prevent and help deal with some of the, the real uh, long-term problems that are going on there, in, including 
you know, uh, uh, drug smuggling uh, that comes north to the United States, uh, you know, migration, illegal migration, long-term issues with um, instability and with global warming and climate, you know, all kinds of things, right, that the Coast Guard is really uh, well-suited to do. So they argue that uh, a, a Coast Guard four-star should start being worked into the mix as the South- Southcom commander, which is, you know, I think I, I had to agree with it as I read it. I was talking to uh, Sam Legrone uh, just about an hour ago, talking about, you know, some of the things that are going on in the world. They're working on a story on MQ-25. Sam, the editor of USNI Sam, News. Sam, the editor of USNI News, That's right? Sam Legrone. That's Sam Legrone. <laughs> that guy. Um and uh, so they're working on a number of stories, uh, you know, in the background over the last week or so, the news has been percolating, uh, you know, um, uh, tensions with Iran have been heightened. Uh, the State Department is drawing down non-essential people in the U.S. Embassy in Baghdad. There's apparently been some uh, indications of warning uh, of potentially um, uh, terrorist types of activity uh, backed by Iran in, in Iraq. White House National Security Advisor John Bolton has been, you know, very uh, vocal about Iran, and they quickly moved the Abraham Lincoln Carrier Strike Group through the ditch from the Mediterranean uh, and is now up in the North Arabian Sea. Uh, so that was looking like it could go kinetic a couple days ago. Uh, there were a lot of indicators, including really interesting that it did not get a lot of front page news, um, but three oil tankers, two Saudi, one Norwegian owned uh, offshore sitting at Anchorage in Fujairah, UAE, uh, were attacked by limpet mines, right? Not sunk. Uh, but small limpet mine uh, damage to the hulls of these three ships, uh, and and nobody's claimed responsibility for that. So you know, is that Iranian backed? Is it IRGC? Is it you know who? There's a lot of speculation out there about you know what's happening uh, with the situation with Iran right now. Uh, but uh, Sam. Uh, said that, uh, you know, it sounds like from his beat at the Pentagon that the Pentagon is really uh, telling the White House, uh, let's go slow here, uh, because if you uh, liked the movie, um, you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom, you would love the uh, the movie Operation the Iranian, or yeah. Yeah, the uh, Iranian more than Freedom. One movie, yeah, yeah, right. You know, Iran three times the size, roughly three times the population without the sort of Sunni-Shia split. And, you know, it, yeah, it would be a very... Plus a real integrated air defense. Right. Be a, Gen 3, 4 airplanes. Right. Um, you know, substantial ground forces. Yeah. Russian modern double-digit SAMs yes. and all kinds of stuff, right? right. So, uh, yeah, folks at the Pentagon that Sam said, you know, sort of off the record are saying, yeah, let's, uh, let's slow down here. Let's take this uh, carefully. And you saw Secretary of State Pompeo run over to uh, Brussels to confer with uh, our allies and the and the, um, the the the, um, the European countries that are still in the Iran nuclear deal, right? So we pulled out of that, but the you know European countries are still in it: uh, Germany, uh, France. Um, and uh, the UK, for example, right? Um, and so it, it looks like now that the White House is saying, okay, well, let's uh, let's go slow, a little bit slower, and you know, continue to hound Iran in through the diplomacy channels, and we'll see what that you know what that yields. But uh, so well, it's that- interesting because on my first cruise back in uh, 84, 85, my first squadron tour, the bad guy was Iran. Yeah, uh, and this was before we went into the Gulf proper. You know, the, the idea of sailing from the North Arabian Sea through the Straits of Hormuz 
into the Gulf was not something you would have done. Right, with, an air, with, a, Storm, with a carrier, right. Yeah, Desert yep. Storm changed that. Yep. Um, but, you know, Bandar Abbas, Bashir, though, I mean, those are the places, and they'd do these P-3 flights. The, the Iranian P-3s would come out, and we'd intercept them, and that, that was kind of the thing. Uh, and, and then with Stark, the, the Exocet attack on Stark, then suddenly Iraq became the threat, and obviously that went on steroids in Desert Storm 1. And that's kind of where the focus has been since then. Now suddenly... Right. The, the, the naval focus is back on Iran. And when you talk about mining and reflagging tankers and all these things, it starts to be mid eighties. Right. Sort of vibe again. Correct. So, you know, what we know and we've seen the press make uh, sort of a big deal about, um, the idea that the Lincoln battle group is going into that region. But anybody who's ever done like you and me have been part of a, carrier strike group and uh, in a squadron, that's just another day in our life, right? You, this is what the beauty of, of, of carrier aviation and carriers is they go where they got to go. Yeah. Three, that's not a three, new thing. And three I, days later, you can be 1,500 miles away. Well, and right. CNO was at sea or space and the press were kind of giving them those like hardball questions they thought about, you know, did, was this a planned evolution and, you know, what are we doing here? And it's like, well, this is just what aircraft carriers bring is this yeah. ability to do this. Right. And, you know, so just sort of, it's, it's a mildly, uh, humorous to see all this uh, hopping and popping about the fact that uh, Lincoln is going to the area. Exactly. Uh, I wanted to highlight a couple things. Uh, a shout out to our listener, George Gabaretta. The first time that we've received a comment and discussion letter uh, for proceedings based on a podcast. So we had uh, cross pollinization. Cross pollin. We love this. this is right. Great. This is awesome. So at the beginning of April, with the expeditionary warfare issue, we had uh, Marine Major Brett Friedman on board uh, on the podcast, and, and then and he was talking about uh, the types of uh, of ships. Uh, that would be needed to quickly move forces, smaller forces, more agile expeditionary forces between islands. And um, uh, George wrote a nice letter for comment and discussion. It'll be in the June issue. So uh, a, a shout out. So if you hear something on the podcast and you want to provide feedback, uh, please do go on our website uh, under write for proceedings or contact us. You'll see how to write for a comment and discussion uh, letter up to 500 words. And uh, we, we love to hear from you. So thanks for that, George. Uh, and I also wanted to point out um, a couple things coming up. Uh, so next week here at the Naval Academy, uh, we'll have the Blue Angels. We're hoping for good weather this year. Uh, a practice show on Tuesday and the full show should be Wednesday. Yep. And we're going to have a bunch of uh, guests here at the Naval Institute. Our, our, uh, uh, our patio off the third deck is a beautiful place to watch the show from. Absolutely. And we have invited, we've, uh, through the PAO at the Blue Angels, we've invited a Blue Angel to come on the podcast next week. So we're, yeah. we're waiting on, uh, on, we're waiting on a reply. On a reply. Uh, double check with them today. The, the request is in. Um, and so, you know, stand by. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and last thing, uh, before we get to our guest today, uh, I was up at, uh, TechNet Cyber. So big, uh, cyber IT show that FCA runs at the Baltimore, uh, convention center yesterday. Walking around the floor, I was there to help present the awards, uh, that are called the Copernicus Awards, which dates back to, uh, Admiral Sabrowski about 1997 when he was the, uh, N6 of the Navy. And, you know, he was big in innovation and he wanted to create an award that would recognize the outstanding efforts of people who are, you know, comms and IT and Intel and cyber and crippies and that kind of folks, right? Uh, so the Naval Institute and AFCIA, we team together with the Navy every year 
to recognize uh, a group of outstanding um, enlisted through officers, most of the, most of the, and civilians. Um, some are at Cybercom and Navy Cyber and 10th Fleet and, and, you know, different units around the fleet, uh, all doing, you know, really pretty amazing stuff, right? Uh, and then I walked the floor and, you know, was talking to people in different booths and things. And, uh, I met a couple of people who said, Hey, I know you, you, you're on the podcast, the proceedings podcast, right? So that was cool. And one of them said, Hey, I got an idea for you guys. Maybe you could from time to time talk about what you're listening to. What do you, what, what podcasts and stuff are you tuning into? So, uh, what, what are your favorites? Um, well, so since my commute is two miles long, I don't really do podcasts. So let me shoot this question back to you, Bill. What do you listen to? Yeah, the guy with the 52-mile yes. uh, yes. commute, right? And yes. Yeah, so I'm in, an, in, in the car for an hour. I listen to NPR a lot. Uh, and one of my favorite shows, uh, it's both a podcast and a radio show, is called Fresh Air. It's by uh, Terry Gross, W-H-Y-Y in Philadelphia. I've been listening to her off and on for years, and she is an exquisite interviewer, just incredible. The last two days, if you've never listened to Fresh Air, uh, I would I would – recommend to anybody to uh, go to the website, just do a, a Google search on Fresh Air, Terry Gross. Uh, but she interviewed yesterday and today Howard Stern, the famous radio jock, right? Howard Stern. And it love him, hate him, or, or a combination of the two. Howard Stern has been a radio personality for a long time. And, and as she does with uh, with, you know, celebrities, with book authors, with politicians, et cetera. She just goes really deep with yeah, Howard. And humanizes him. Yeah, and yeah. humanizes him. It's a wonderful, wonderful interview. And they're both incredibly articulate. And, and Howard basically says, you know, this has been exhausting, but I, <laughs> I I've loved talking to you. So yeah, it was great. really, it's a great interview. And uh, I just recommend that show to anybody because she is, so smart and so articulate and and she gets really interesting guests and even if you sometimes when i when i listen to who's her guest going to be it might be somebody i, I don't know a, an opera singer a couple weeks ago right? right and i think oh my, i i'm not interested in opera but i listen to the first couple questions and how they answer and i go okay i'm i'm in yeah. because you learn new things and that's to me what's so exciting well that's what people have said about the proceedings podcast as well and since we're talking about commutes and whatnot, what I do listen to during my commute is my Spotify app, streaming music. And what I want to say is Proceedings Podcast is now also available on Spotify, thanks to the hard work of our tech team. So if that's your streaming service of choice, look for the Proceedings Podcast on Spotify as well. Very cool. So speaking right. of interesting guests. Yes, let's get to our guests. So our guest today is uh, Navy Commander Tom Bodine, call sign Jethro. He is a uh, an F-18 WIZO weapon systems officer, uh, finishing up a uh, two or three year tour in the Pentagon at the Office of Secretary of Defense, uh, CAPE, OSD CAPE, Capabilities and Analysis. I'll let him uh, tell us the, the whole acronym. Uh, and he is uh, selected for captain and selected for major command. And he's going to go out to be a DCAG or a deputy air wing commander and then air wing commander of carrier air wing seven. So Tom, thanks for joining us from the, from the Pentagon today. Great to have you. And, uh, uh how are things over there in the five sided wind tunnel? <laughs> Thanks for having me. It's uh, great to be here. Things things are good. I, w I will correct you and say I I've achieved escape velocity uh, sooner than most, uh, ending up uh, only at a year here in, uh, wow. in Cape. So wow. uh, I, I count myself fortunate in that. Yes, you are fortunate. Boy, that's, that's the that's, way to do it. That's escape velocity. That's impressive. <laughs> yeah. So so tell us what Cape stands for. 
cost assessment and program evaluation. Okay. And, uh, and what do you, yeah, what do you guys do the there? Budget, folks. They're, they're budget, but they're also looking at um, what capabilities are needed, correct? Correct. It's, uh, they look in the fit up and then beyond. So they're kind of fit up five year uh, defense plan and then the follow on. So really a 10 year look uh, and to boil it down, basically, they're looking to make sure that the services are buying the right stuff for the right amount in the proper quantities at the proper time kind of is, is, is what they're tasked with doing. And how does the adversary uh, figure into that equation. So thinking about great power competition, China, Russia, A2, AD, all that stuff, is, is, is that plugged into that? Uh, absolutely. So they, we have a, a, a wonderful core of uh, civilian uh, analysts who are supplemented by uh, service uh, individuals like myself uh, from all the services uh, and through the many different divisions within CAPE itself. Uh, a lot of analysis goes in uh, to understanding the environment in that five-year period, but even beyond because we understand that the programmatic decisions uh, that the services make, uh, the services make, uh, especially when it comes to procurement uh, of long lead items or large items, will be in service for 10, 20, in case of carriers, up to 50 years, and if the P-52, it looks like forever. Uh, so it is important that we get those things right uh, and that we match it to the enemy. So the reason we have you on the show is because you're the author in the current issue of Proceedings, the May issue of the U.S. Naval Aviation and Weapons Year in Review. Um, your review starts with a... Uh, a general statement, let me read it. Following decades of overuse and underfunding, recent naval aviation efforts focus on restoring readiness and lethality. The 2018 Bipartisan Budget Act allotted $14 billion towards restoring Navy readiness enabler accounts. This marks only the second time since 2008 that these accounts were appropriately funded. So that sets sort of a optimistic tone. How are we looking at the 30,000 foot level from your point of view? I think we're in good shape. Like the, the vector uh, is headed in the correct direction, uh, assuming that uh, we can continue the momentum and all indications are that we, we will in the budgetary process, right? It's not, not just the top line dollar, but it, it's being able to have your money on time uh, through a past uh, NDAA and not just through a, a CR, which, which hurts us for a variety of reasons. Uh, so with, with the two year passage, uh, in 2018, and it looks like, uh, Congress is uh, on step to, can to continue that, that work through 2020. Uh, I, I would say, uh, that the service, uh, the services, uh, writ large and then Navy and then Naval Aviation, uh, have a good vector going forward. So that, that provides some consistency and stability in, in the budgetary process. So you, you can buy things, your, your suppliers know that, uh, orders are going to continue to come. Uh, you can get, you know, for aviation, you can get spare parts in the bins, et cetera. Uh, and it's not a, it's not a sort of, uh, uh, you know, flood and drought and flood and drought kind of uh, environment, right? Yeah, it, it makes us a a, uh, a good customer to have, right? It's because we're consistent, uh, we're stable, uh, and so you know that uh, as a subprime or a prime contractor with the DOD that you can go ahead and enter into those agreements because you're going to have to buy long lead items, uh, whether that be material or personnel, uh, and you can go ahead and make those investments because you know the services have the authority to go through with those contracts uh, down the line. So the article deals with specific platforms. Let's go through a few of the 
there, those starting with aircraft carriers. Uh, we had Tal Manville, retired captain, on the show a few weeks ago. Um, he wrote an article in uh, in uh, the digital form of proceedings right. uh, called uh, "Refuel the Truman." It's the law. Um, there have been some sort of, uh, you know, some some back and forths. Uh, as you know, the Veep uh, spoke to the Truman crew and said, "You guys are in." And uh, PCNO testified the next day, said, "Maybe not so fast." And so, um, but your article doesn't necessarily deal with that specific issue. But you talk about the Ford class. So, how are we looking you know, across the fit up for Ford uh, procurement? Well, so across the fit up for Ford, we, we're doing great. The, uh, the 2019 NDA, uh, was the first time in 30 years that the Navy received, uh, permission from Congress to enter into a two, uh, two carrier buy, uh, with Hunting Ingwalls, uh, uh, industries, which which is fantastic, and that again it it allows for that stability, uh, and it allows for people to plan because obviously it takes a long time. The the Ford class itself, uh, some growing pains I think are well documented, uh, but uh, there again, uh, proper vector got some great minds looking into uh, looking into it and and tending it, and so uh, you know I, I think. The way ahead is is pretty bright, and and the way ahead in carrier aviation, my personal opinion, and admittedly I'm biased as a naval aviator, I I think uh, is is a pretty good outlook. If for nothing else, then hey, look what just happened with Iran, which you were talking about earlier on in the opening to the show here. Yeah. So speaking of, let's put on our fleet bubba hats here. Emails. Have you heard anything uh, that may uh, get your concern with respect to being, you know, PCAG here in terms of that, that system, you know, uh, anything, anything, uh, got your attention. Yeah. You can always, you always hear a lot of things and I'll tell you what the, uh, so going through this paper and doing the research for, you know, uh, their last underway period, 747, uh, cats and 747 traps. Uh, and then when you dug a little deeper, you're like, Hey, some people wanted to make some noise about, uh, some aircraft being suspended and some of them boltering, right? And I'm like, well, guess what happens <laughs> all, all the time? That's you another know, day in that, cyclic that, ops. That, that, that's nothing new, right? Right. Uh, so uh, I look at it and I'm like, if, if it's high reliability, uh, it frees up manning, it, uh, it, it increases deck cycle rate, uh, uh, it's hard to find fault in that, right? Right. Um, and, and I think they've done the testing uh, there at Dahlgren or at, or at Pax River and uh and it seems to be operating as advertised at this point. I think there's a lot of a lot of problems or at least a lot of noise about problems uh at on the outset of it, but uh not so much anymore. I I think we're looking pretty good right now. Yeah, and that's so, that, that's both the electromagnetic uh aircraft launch system, the emails, right, which is mm-hmm. uh the, the new catapults and the en- the enhanced arresting gear. Yeah, it has the better yeah. arresting gear, new lens. Uh, there's right. there's a bunch of stuff that's happening on the flight deck. Um, Jethro, what you didn't mention in your bio is you also have Tomcat experience, which is the best part of your bio. Um, <laughs> and so remind the audience back in the day when uh, you and I were flying the big fighter, we do cat shots at, you know, up upwards of 67, 70 uh, K, right, uh, in terms of the pounds, the total wear- aircraft weight at launch. Um, what does a Super Hornet nominally run if it's if it's loaded out? 
Yeah, the, the biggest shot it takes is the in the mighty five wet configuration as a tanker, uh, and that tops out at about sixty six sixty six k. Okay, so that's still uh, a pretty good shot. And and again, e, e, what you're hearing is emails is able to handle that no problem. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, they 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 had to um, they had to you know they dialed it to eleven when they first first hooked it up you know this is something new let's let's go to 11 on this one and shoot things off the edge and what they found was the impulse the impact from that initial onset was so great that they were having structural issues on the aircraft themselves and they're like okay let's let's do a little better modeling uh, uh and, and dial it back to 10 where where the the fleet is actually going to operate yeah. and, and they've solved it so uh lines of coding controlling the electrons in the electromagnetic field and again super smooth uh, and i look forward actually to taking my first ride on one of those so carrier availability we're we're liking it um we another guest of ours that bill and i just sat down in his office a couple of weeks ago was emma winter uh peo jsf uh, so next category is strike interdiction aircraft what's happening in that category yeah well you know ac- across the board what isn't happening I, I, as i did the research for for this article uh, i think when you Take a step back. What what at least I noted was what is not happening across the board in naval aviation. The sheer amount of modernization uh, across the board in any platform in any type model series is pretty astounding. Uh, especially when you compare that maybe to some of our other services and what they're what they're doing with their air forces. So uh, I, I wanted to say that from the get go. So in in carrier aviation, you know, F thirty fives. You talked about that. You know, the Navy's first squadron VFA one forty seven out in Lamar. IOC back in February. Uh, Fantastic uh, news there. We've moved all our pilot training from the the shared training site uh, down in Eglin with VFA 101 to to Lemoore, so VFA 125, and that way you have kind of your FRS and your operational squadrons co-located the way the Navy customarily does business. So is VFA Uh, 101 going away again? VFA 101 is going away. Yes, I, unfortunately, I, uh, they, that's I think they, a heartbreaker uh, once they, again. They just had, yeah, they just had their ceremony, I think, where they rolled up the flag. Oh man, um, on that just recently, I shed a tear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was uh, still still one of the coolest patches. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Jethro, in the future, will the F thirty all the F thirty fives be for the Navy? F thirty five Cs will they all be based at Lemoore? Uh, as of right now, that is the plan. The, the Navy's operational squadron growth uh, is going to be mixed in with the Marines on the F-35 Charlie side. So it, it, the transition plan really goes Navy, Marine, Navy, Marine, Navy, Marine. Uh, so that that is going to uh, allow the Navy to essentially to grow the F-35 uh, really over the next five to six years just there in Lemoore, which I think is a good thing. So will they ever be in Oceana? I would never say never, and I, I want to speak uh, beyond four years. Uh, if anything of my one year here in Cape has taught me, <laughs> is careful about predicting the future. Um, so I, I think, you know, at some point in time, uh, when that is, I don't know. But as of right now, the plan is to keep them there and one more. Uh, for East Coast carriers, then, East Coast Air Wings, like you'll command at Air Wing 7, uh, if if and when you get an F-35 squadron, it'll have to come in from Lemoore, right? It'll be kind of like the model of the Growler, right? Yeah. The Growlers are all based Whidbey up at Whidbey. Yeah. And then for the East Coast, they just they fly across country yep. and, and join your East Coast, right? Yep, correct. Got it. Do you think, uh, do, do you know whether uh, CAG-7 will have F-35s uh, in your tenure as uh, DCAG and CAG? <laughs> 
no, unfortunately, unfortunately, they will not. And so I, I said back that I look forward to taking a ride on the emails. Uh, the what's currently on schedule for me to deploy, not not on one of those ships, but maybe I can get it as a as I go through the refresh course. Got it. That's pretty cool. Okay, so talk to us about the uh, F eighteen EF Super Hornet and the modernization that's happening there. Yeah, uh, so they, they've developed a program with, uh, with Boeing. They've got, uh, they're calling it SLM, Service Life Modernization. So it is a SLEP-like program where they're adding life to the airframe, uh, which is pretty common across any, uh, TAC air platform. And so they're taking the aircraft originally modeled for 6,000 hours and ultimately will get it up to 10,000 hours. Now there's kind of a step function in there, but the, the goal of that modernization uh, program is to get it up to 10,000, uh, 10,000 hours. And then it also comes along with conformal fuel tanks, which will increase the range by about 33%, has the possibility of also freeing up that uh, weapon station that the Hornets usually use for an external drop tank. You've got some advanced cockpit displays, uh, and then you really got some computer guts uh, without going into the weeds uh, that they're changing. And I think when you look at it, that's probably the most significant change because the Navy, uh, between the Navy and the Air Force, the Navy is really uh, on the leading edge when it comes to uh, kind of third-party targeting type stuff uh, through its NIFCA uh, uh, initiatives. And uh, I'll tell you what, the the hardware and software technology that's coming along with Block 3 is going to even take that a step further. And that's probably the most significant advancement uh, with regards to, to that SLM uh, process beyond just being able to keep, keep the Super Hornets around longer. And then speaking of the Blue Angels, they're getting it next year. What, what's the first season that they're getting the Super Hornet? Yep, 2021, if things hold uh, as advertised. Now, they, they have not only an acquisition uh strategy, but they also have to have a training strategy, and I have not been in any discussions, uh, but what I understand is from a procurement perspective, they should be uh, available to have their jets uh, for air shows in 2021. So are they getting, do we know what block they're getting in general? Are they getting the older Super Hornets or what? How's that, how's that working? Uh, I don't know is the answer. I've heard both that they're going to get older ones and then modify them or they're going to get new ones that are highly modified straight off the line. I've heard both of those. I don't know how it is, uh, how it is, um, going to end up playing out. And you know, uh, the former air, uh, boss there, he's up there with you guys now at the, uh, Naval yeah, Academy. Yeah, he's the commandant he, or he's, he's, he's about to be the commandant. Yeah. Uh, and he should, uh, he's helping them with that transition. So he, he's, He's a smart guy on the subject. Oh, sounds like a future okay. podcast guest right here in our yeah. midst. Fantastic. Yeah, love it. Yeah. All right. Hey, um, we have on our editorial board, in fact, uh, just became the chair of our editorial board, Commander Brendan Stickles, who's a growler guy. Uh, and so the next uh, aircraft that's up in your uh, aviation review is uh, electronic attack and the, and the growler. So tell us uh, some of the things that are happening with that. Uh, yeah, so- New airplane. Exciting times New for airplane. Growlers. Uh, they, they had their last jets delivered just uh, last month, I believe, the last three to round out the, the 160 in the fleet there. So that that's uh, good news for them. Um, they had H-12 delivered in their aircraft and, uh, and and very exciting news from the Growler fleet, which will then translate to good news for the rest of the fleet, is with H-12 and kind of the, the guts that come along with H-12, not on just the H-12 software that runs the mission computers, but some changes to the mission computers themselves. Themselves, uh, they were able to actually be the first squadron. Their FRS uh, VAQ-129 was uh, able to implement the live virtual constructive training environment 
that the Navy has been uh, been working towards for several years now. Uh, and that's where you can string together jets in the air with people in simulators, uh, with then just digital inputs that have no human interaction other than somebody sitting at a keyboard, uh, and string them all in together into this unified uh, training environment. And I, uh, they used it while they were on detachment uh, to Key West, I believe was that detachment, and uh, they saved nine uh, red air sorties, and, and people may scoff at nine red air sorties at the outset, but if I can turn nine red air sorties into nine blue air sorties and get training out of that, and then I'm able to expand upon that, take the lessons learned that the AQ-129 produced and expand it fleet-wide, uh, anytime I don't have to fly a red air mission and can fly a blue air mission, I, I call that a win. Uh, and so that's freeing up our resources to do to do just that. And then uh, so the AQ-129 was the first to implement it. The plan is, is to take it and move it to VFA-122, which is the F-18 FRS at uh, Lemoore, uh this coming up year and hopefully expand it and thereby, again, reducing the total number of red air sorties required by our aircraft sitting on our ramps. Yeah, that's pretty cool. And uh, let's move to the early warning world. Um, what's happening with the E-2D Advanced Hawkeye? Yeah, the E-2D, uh, exciting things with the E-2D. First, uh, you know, they, they're getting their refueling uh, ability out to out to the fleet, which I think is a big deal for them because it allows them to stay on station longer, and especially when you start talking about NIFCA and things they're going to want to do with not just one E-2, but two E-2s out there in orbit, so keeping them on station. Uh, God bless the uh, the operators in that one, the pilots and the air crew, uh, for having some some. Uh, pretty stuff, uh, stiff backsides, but uh, uh, I think it's a big deal when you start talking about, hey, putting the network together that's going to allow kill chains uh, in theaters that, that span great distances against uh, peer and near-peer threats. Uh, so I, I think it's a big deal that that air refueling capability is coming to the E2D. We're also buying them, so the Navy has procured a five-year deal uh, to finish it, to round out essentially the end of the E2D buy, which is good. So again, locking it down, being that good customer, providing stability, which will drive costs down and allow for us to gain efficiencies faster and then get them out to the, out to the operator faster. So, so that's good news. Um, and then, uh, probably more specific, but, uh, you know, selling it to our partners, uh, one of the initiatives in the NDS, one of the lines of efforts, I should say, in the NDS calls for us to strengthen our partners and allies. Uh, and the State Department just authorized uh, this past year Japan to be able to buy E2Ds. So the Tiger Tails, which are out there now uh, as part of our CAG-5 forces, uh, may be operating alongside, uh, alongside some Japanese counterparts in E2D, again, just strengthening our network in that part of the world. So the E2s, instead of just uh, double cycling, which is sort of normal for them, they might be triple or quadruple cycling if they can air, <laughs> air refuel. Yeah. Like uh, I said, uh, a long I'm, time. Glad, I'm, glad, I'm glad they could do it. I'm just glad it's not, not me. Yeah. I don't think it, yeah. that would be tough. Pack, I'm pack still extra paying for packs. triple cycle hops. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, and when uh, ultimately, you know, uh, if I... Uh, when I get the opportunity to sit in the seat as decag or cag, I, I think I'll I'll take those opportunities to use the uh, the double cycle sorting, maybe not the triple, <laughs> triple triple cycle sorting. Uh, for yeah, them, yeah, that's where you can go. I don't want to steal the flight time from you, Jos. Like, man, that cag's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it exactly. That's it. That's your logic. Um, so 
let's talk about our rotary wing Bubba's, um, the H60R and S. Uh, you know, I saw those guys at West, our West Conference, and uh, they they come off as supermoto. There's a lot happening in that community. What specifically is going on as we look at the year in review? Yeah, so uh, for the Romeo community, or rather, uh, yeah, the Romeo community, you know, there there are the Air Wings anti-submarine asset, the organic anti-submarine asset, right? We we've got P8s and uh, from outside, but organic to the air wing, the Romeo is in. And so they, they've got some great, uh, great software and hardware on their aircraft with the radar and the dipping sonar, but probably one of the biggest advancements, uh, for the air wing and really the battle group when you think about it is, uh, they're getting the addition of the uh, automatic radar periscope detection and discrimination kit, uh, that retrofits back onto the radar. It gives them some great ability with not only detecting periscopes, but identifying them out at range, uh, tactically significant ranges, allowing the battle group commander to make tactical decisions off of that. And, and that's a huge, huge benefit that that is coming online uh, here in 20. Uh, it was coming online 2018 and will be fielded uh, in the next couple of years. That's a that's a great win for the entire battle group that's coming specifically uh, to the Romeos themselves. Uh, to the Sierras, uh, you know, there are mine uh, countermeasure uh, bubbas as long as well as CSAR and SAR, and, and then they do our logistics runs uh, as well, and then work with special operators so starting with the special operators right you got to have you have that that gunner in the back um they've been taking a uh, a pounding so they did some uh, health and welfare issues with how they've arranged the seat doesn't sound super sexy but anytime you can uh save injury to your people right that's a big win for everybody uh and so they've redesigned the gunner seat in the back to do just that and that, that's going to pay huge dividends for us in the future again not super sexy not something we don't uh that we want to talk about a whole lot but uh it is a it is a big deal um beyond that uh they they've also uh, uh instituted a, a helmet uh display uh, and tracking systems essentially think a, a HUD on the Hilo, uh, and what this provides for them beyond just the situational awareness, it now gives them a computed point of impact for both their their 20 millimeter cannon as well as their rockets. Which, when you think about again, kind of a straight of Hormuz small boats, fact thiac type situation, uh, is going to pay huge dividends for the entire battle group as well as uh, our hits uh, start finding their mark more often. So, so, so those are two big things for our for our Hilo brethren that I, again. Sounds small, but I think large ramifications for the entire battle group and go beyond just just the um, uh, just the the airframe itself. So, are the plane guard duties stood by the Sierras exclusively now? I think primarily Sierras. That's not to say that Romeo can't do it. Uh, Sierras are primarily because they're outfitted with the diver. Right. Uh, in a in a pinch, uh, the Romeo can do it right, uh, but. Uh, the Sierra still because they they have the the qualified personnel. Uh, then go on to the uh, the you already mentioned the P eight so P threes are gone completely now. Is that true? Uh, I don't think they're completely gone. Uh, I'll have to double check that. I know we're we're getting close, uh, but the P eight is uh, is uh, starting to leave its mark in the operational operational fleet. Right, and you got a great picture in the magazine showing uh, of the camera system that's on the P eight. That's fantastic. It's got a great full uh, full motion video, and then great color pictures of that Unipac two coming out, saving uh, those Micronesian or Indonesian uh, sailors that were lost at sea. You know. P8s get called 
they go down there within three hours they find them and they drop them a pack and 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 there you go uh, uh, the the picture you, you know, mentioned problem. is on on page 97 of the of the may issue of the magazine and it, it's a really cool shot that does show that pa dropping a unipack a search and rescue kit to those fishermen uh, uh near micronesia and beyond that, they, uh, the, the P8s, uh, they have a really great radar in it already. Uh, they've funded some efforts to, to get GMTI, ground moving target indicator, uh, upgrades to that, which is only going to further increase the capability uh, of that phenomenal, uh, search platform already. Um, and then kind of going back to how does this all wrap into the NDS, right? The, the, the P8s also getting refueling capabilities. So keeping that, uh, that platform on station longer, as you know, when, when you hunt for subs, persistence is the key. You, you, you got to be around to find them. And then once you got to find them, you, you can't let them go. Uh, and so to be able to keep the P8 on station longer is only going to uh, help us out. Uh, and both uh, Sixth Fleet and Seventh Fleet got introduced uh, to those capabilities. Uh, you know, friend and foe alike, take notice, uh, because our P8 subhunters, very capable, very capable machines, now they're able to stay on station uh, that much longer. So, so take note, because we're watching you now, right? <laughs> so, uh, again, uh, great news for, for that community moving forward. So when I was working V-22 at Nav Era, we used to talk about a variant called the HV-22. It was not in the program of record, but it looks like we have something emerging that actually will do that mission. What's that all about? Yeah, the uh, CMV-22, the uh, the replacement there for the old uh, venerable C-2 COD, right? Um uh, good news in that community in that it is uh, starting to stand up and come together as a community. So the, the maintainers uh, and their Naval Aviation Training Support Group, which is the folks who train them, uh, stood up in October of 18. And then the FRS officially opened its doors uh, in December of 18. Not qualified to produce pilots yet. That's still occurring with the Marines down in New River, uh, North Carolina. Uh, but we don't expect that to uh, last forever. And, and uh, you know, as we move forward, we'll switch that training over to um, our own squadron, uh, VRM-30, the Titans there. Where's that squadron going to be based at? Uh, North Island is what I heard, but don't quote me on that. Gotcha. I, I believe that's what I, what I recall is North Island. And the, the CMV-22, as you write, is uh, scheduled for IOC in 2021. So that's the... It's happening um, that, fast. It's, it's coming up fast, yeah, right? Yeah, this, is, yeah. this is no yeah, long lead thing. And again, it's our partnership with the Marine Corps uh, and their expertise and us uh, being able to partner with them on training both on the air crew and on the maintainer side, I think, which is allowing that that uh, that uh, smooth transition and, and really fast transition when you take a look at trying to bring that program aboard. Uh, so I think we're finding some real good efficiencies from, from our green friends. Uh, I shouldn't say that, our, our green uniform. So the brave new world of UAVs, uh, what's happening, uh, especially on the the MQ-25, a lot of conversations happening uh, around uh, the fleet about the capabilities in in Admiral, who just talked to us uh, yesterday at uh, CSIS. MERS. Admiral MERS was talking about the, you know, the development and how we decided to make that into a tanker and so forth and how they're very excited about that capability. But how about the world of UAVs in general? Exciting things in the world of UAV, depending on where you sit on that. But 
like it or not, you know, it's the wave of the future uh, as it should be, right? Uh, I think we're we're taking a very measured uh, approach within the Navy, we being the Navy, uh, and I think what we're seeing is some pretty good uh, results based off the approaches we're taking. MQ-25 starting out there, you know, carrier-borne asset, uh, refueling from, from the get go. Uh, but I think everybody looks at that thing and goes, Hey, uh, once we get this refueling thing and really just operating from the carrier licked, uh, that I don't think it's, it's very hard to see whether it's that or something similar to that that starts transitioning and taking over, uh, taking over, uh, missions that, that we want unmanned vehicles to have. And that's, you know, persistent surveillance and, and other missions. Of the like, right? So, on the MQ twenty five, you you list in the article that the uh, the prototype air- aircraft testing is going to happen in twenty twenty one. IOC mid twenty twenty four, five MQ twenty fives per air wing, um, which will require an ultimate fleet of about seventy airframes. So, I, I can tell you, Jethro, the idea of being, you know, behind the JBD or something, you know, uh, and, and watching an unmanned aircraft taxi by mm-hmm. you. Um, that, that just kind of freaks me out. You know, that, that really is a brave new world. Um, you know, yeah, you know, I, I, uh, I agree. Uh, and we'll see how freaked out I am if I ever get the opportunity to, to see that occur. Um, but I will tell you, right. People were saying the same thing, uh, for the Hornet, right. Uh, Hornet pilots, when it was introduced, Hey, you take your hand off the stick, right? Yeah. That Hands freaked on the me out too. The first time I and saw that, that. freak freaked everybody out uh, starting out so you know uh like i get it um but uh, just like you and i there are good people thinking about this and and uh working hard to to overcome those issues so yeah i'm not going to say i'm going to be uh uh at ease when i see the uh, an unmanned something taxiing by me on the flight deck but then again i'm not really at ease when i see a man thing taxi, taxi by me <laughs> on the point. flight deck either That's so uh you know, I, I think we're doing it the right, uh, doing it the right way, uh, finding out what we don't know, uh, and then moving from there. Uh, and like I said, you know, it, it doesn't take a genius to take a look at the design of that thing and go, uh, once we have the technicalities licked, the TTPs in place, uh, we can start transitioning this into something, uh, something that's useful in a variety of missions beyond, beyond just simply, uh, tanking itself. So, so I, I think that's good. Um, and let's get to the final category, which is weapons and avionics. What uh, are some of the highlights in that category? Yeah, I think what you're seeing there is uh, is the true uh, where where you can see uh, true is probably a poor word where you can see the biggest uh, and most immediate impacts of uh, the 2018 National Defense Strategy, uh, and that's where we talk about the Lorazm and the Argo ER. Both of those weapons uh, kind of came out from, hey, we're back in a near-peer fight, uh, and we need something a little better than what we got, a little longer range, something that can do some penetrating into A2AD, uh, and it's got some capabilities uh, to do some targeting in a variety of ways, uh, and those two weapons uh, fit the bill, right? And so uh, 20, uh, the LRASM uh, started out in 2012. Now, by 2018, hey, it is a program of record, and we're there, uh, the Navy is currently engaged in ways to even further improve that weapon, which is a, a, a fantastic, uh, fantastic maritime strike weapon, something that we've needed uh, to replace the venerable harm and slam ER for, for quite some time. So, 
uh, welcome aboard uh, Lorasm, and I look forward to seeing what the Lorasm uh, 2.0 uh, version of that. And then same thing for Argum ER, you know, uh, kind of replacing the harm, but not one for one because the Argum uh, itself uh, operates in a little different manner uh, and goes after a, a wider variety of targets. Argum ER, again, just uh, um, optimized for operations for uh, at sea as well as um, within an A2 AD complex IADS environment. And so those are two things that uh, the operator can't get soon enough in my mind. So it's good to see that those programs are marching marching along uh, in 2018 uh, to carry our warfighters into 2019. Hey, uh, Jethro, both those weapons will be uh, deployable from uh, F-35Cs and Super Hornets? So right now, uh, the program of record uh, for Lorasm does not include it on the F-35. Um, that's not saying it can't, just a program of record. The F-35 uh, has Block 4 modernization, and maybe you've heard of that, but essentially Block 4 modernization through the C2, D2 uh, modernization effort for the F-35 is just chocked full of stuff. We we want to put so much stuff on that for good reason that we really got to prioritize. And so LRASM right now, not uh, not scheduled to go on the F-35 with the thought there that um, range of that weapon is is doesn't necessitate some of the characteristics that the F-35 needs. So let's put some other things of higher priority on the F-35. We'll allow the F-18 to carry the LRASM because it's going to be in the fleet uh, for a long time. And so let that be the truck that brings these very capable weapons to the fight. Jethro, it's been great talking to you. Really appreciate you writing the uh, Naval Aviation and Weapons Review this year uh, in the May Naval Review issue. That's not an easy thing to, to do to sort of uh, summarize the, the, you know, hit the high points of uh, all the different things going on in Naval Aviation. As you said, a busy year, 2018, lots of modernization and upgrades and new programs and new systems coming online. And uh, you uh, headed out back out to the fleet, uh, soon to be captain, soon to be a deputy air wing commander at, at Air Wing 7. We wish you all the best with that. Uh, but you'll be working with some of these new capabilities and that's got to be, uh, you know, kind of, you, you got to be moto about that. Yeah, very excited to see these things out in the operational world. It's one thing to see them on a piece of paper and, and talk about dollar bills and funding and programmatics, but it's quite another to actually go out there and where the rubber meets the road and, and let the operators take a hold of these things and go do what, what they're meant to do with them, right? So uh, that that's very exciting. Well, we wish you all the luck and all the best luck, and we also hope that you'll continue to write for proceedings as you're out there uh, and talk to your, your J.O. Bubba's and get them as, uh, as they innovate and, uh, you know, bring some of these new systems online and test them and play with them and figure out what they can do. Uh, let us know what they're, what's going on out there on the, on the bleeding edge or the, the pointy edge of the spear. So look forward to hearing from you in the future. And thanks again for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely. And thank thank you for having me. Thanks. All, all right. That wraps it up. Another episode of uh, the proceedings podcast. And remember victory begins the Naval Institute. Have a great week. The proceedings podcast is brought to you by the Bell 407 GXI, a helicopter bringing advanced training technology, best value in life cycle sustainability to the next generation of naval aviators. See the Bell 407 GXI in action at bell.co slash Navy 407.